to Sermon Notes. I'm Michael. I'm here with Garland and Clark, along with our producer, Josh. And guys, it's that time of year. The presents are going to be wrapped. The trees are going up. The Christmas lights are going up. Last night, I was driving around Fayetteville. I noticed every neighborhood has one house. There's one house who's already got their lights up. Uh, but by the time folks are listening to this, uh, Christmas season will be upon us. And so, we call that season around here Advent, the weeks leading up to Christmas, and so this is going to be our one Sermon Notes podcast for the month of December as we prepare to celebrate the birth of Christ. Garland, I grew up in a church that didn't observe Advent. We didn't celebrate Advent, so when I started attending fellowship, I had to learn what it was and, and understand why we do this every year here. So tell us a little bit about what Advent is and why we celebrated at fellowship. Um, well, yeah, I, you know, I, growing up here in Northwest Arkansas, we did celebrate Advent, but it was with, um, it was with like the, the chocolates in the windows and we did the candles. I never knew what it meant. I didn't know what the word meant. So the word Advent just simply means arrival or coming. Um, that's what we're celebrating, the coming of, uh, the King, the savior into the world and a very fast, uh, overview of the history. Uh, we could go into a deep dive of the history if you wanted. Um, but Christians just like, just like, uh, modern people, ancient people, uh, people throughout uh, humanity all, of all times have had certain traditions, certain yearly rituals that mark time for us. Uh, ancient people had them, modern people have them. We have national uh, rituals that we celebrate together, like the 4th of July, Memorial Day, Labor Day, these kinds of things. We have some that are religious in nature. Uh, we have some that are centered on Thanksgiving, on giving thanks, like Thanksgiving. And you think about it, we orient ourselves to that calendar. Well, the ancient Jews were the same, and ancient Christians were the same, and very very, very quickly, looking back historically, very quickly upon Jesus's resurrection, Christians saw fit to celebrate that year after year. We call it Easter. And so we can actually look at the history of the Christian calendar, starting with Easter, going back to very, very soon after the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Christians then added a preparation period of 40 days for Easter that we now call Lent. And that was the next piece we might say added to this early Christian calendar. And now we've moved forward a couple hundred years. Uh, Christians then, uh, they mirrored that with a period of celebration, basically the party after Easter, which we call Eastertide. And as they filled out this calendar, just to orient Christians to this story year by year, they added another period that we, we now call Epiphany. The Epiphany season is about the ministry of Jesus. And that initially had we might say a little bit of Christmas flavor, um, but Christians about the fifth or sixth century said, you know what, let's just do an entire season dedicated uh, to just the, the incarnation Christmas. And that's where we get Advent, the season of Advent. And so uh, this, this calendar took a few centuries to be, uh, to be developed. But if you think about it, it's really cool. We're going to be participating in a 1500 year old or so uh, church tradition that, thousands and thousands of Christians have celebrated marking the coming of Jesus into the world, this thing called Advent. So while it has some ancient roots and it can feel a little weird and it can feel a little ritualistic at times, I actually think that brings some beauty uh, to this season. And so I'm looking forward uh, over these next few weeks just to to read the passages together, light the candles together, to, to sing Christmas songs together as we look at the coming of Jesus into the world. And of course, we're going to light those candles each Sunday leading up to Christmas. And then on Christmas Eve... We'll light the Christ candle, the center candle 
that Jesus is the centerpiece of this whole experience that we call Advent, this time of anticipation of, of his incarnation and coming. And so, Clark, this year, we're going to, as a church, spend our Advent Sundays and our, our devotional reading time. We're going to be primarily in the book of Luke. Tell us a little bit about Luke's approach to the birth of Jesus. Yeah, Michael, be happy to. Um, and just so everybody knows, um, we're going to be walking through uh, chapters one and two of Luke and basically doing a flyover and then dropping into certain scenes leading up to the birth of Jesus. Um, these scenes won't necessarily move along with the Advent themes, hope, peace, joy, and love, um, but they'll give us kind of a uh, some insight into this heaven meets earth, this incarnation experience that's happening. And I thought it'd be instructive just to read the first four verses of Luke to kind of set our time together, and uh, and then we can drop into a few of these these scenes here. And I am reading from the NAS here, um, inasmuch as many have undertaken undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word have handed them down to us. It seemed fitting for me, Luke. As well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. I like that NAS translation. That's well, kind of cool. And the font is big the in this Bible, truth. and it helps me yeah. see it too. But uh, but yeah, Luke, Luke's given us this chronological account of all the events leading up to the birth of Jesus. And so what we're going to see here is the collision of a few things. Um, we have Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled and being magnified in some of these scenes, meeting New Testament real-life characters in this one family. It's fascinating. Um, we've got times and dates and name of rulers. We have Herod and Augustus and Quirinius and... We, just the context of the Caesars in Rome. Um, we have references to Elijah, David, Abraham, Moses. And then again, like I said, we have this family. And uh, we have this intermediary, Gabriel, who brings this news. And so there's some really interesting, strange, and incredible supernatural things happening um, in these first two chapters. And so um, what we're going to do uh, during this this series is we're going to see um, this prophecy meets fulfillment in the incarnation. And we're going to drop down into these scenes where Gabriel visits Mary, Mary's excited song of praise, Zechariah's prophecy, and then the birth of Jesus. And then it culminates with the shepherds worshiping, which is what any time in Advent should, should culminate in. And so that's a little bit about where we're going in this, Michael. And uh, I think it'll be helpful just to take some time and read chapters one and two to kind of get the bigger context. And then we will, uh, like I said, be dropping into certain scenes in the story. Yeah, that's good. There's so much that's so familiar in these passages when we think about Christmas, a lot of the things we think of. But when we actually sit down and study the text, man, it's just loaded. It's so much more than what we can get from our, our plastic nativity scene figurines that we set out at Christmas. Garland, you're going to kick us off 
with an angel named Gabriel. When we think about Christmas, we think about angels. Angels are a big part of the Christmas story. But Gabriel's kind of a special angel, and when he shows up, usually something important is happening. Yeah, in a non a book that we don't include in our Bible, they have Gabriel as one of the most important angels. It's in First Enoch. It's a it's a Second Temple Jewish text, and it talks about Gabriel is one of the four angels that has very close interaction with Yahweh. And so, uh, yeah, we we don't read that and kind of get that. But when you see Gabriel showing up, your brain as a as an astute and alert Bible reader, you see Gabriel showing up, you should have some kind of an alarm bell because these are so familiar. We kind of read that and go, sure, yeah, Gabriel, that, I get that. But as a as a alert Bible reader, you should you should see that name and go, I've seen this guy before. Um, in fact, he's, we've only seen him twice in all of our Bible, and uh, the other two times we've seen him are really significant places. And so Gabriel shows up two times in the Old Testament, and uh, those two times are literally back-to-back chapters in the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is concerned with the people of Israel in exile awaiting their king to come. And uh, Daniel's weird. It's got all sorts of strange imagery. The, in chapter 8, Gabriel shows up to unpack a vision about a ram and a goat. Pretty exciting, which is actually about um, some Greek empire stuff surrounding Alexander the Great in the 300s BC. And then in chapter 9, Gabriel shows up to talk to Daniel. And what Gabriel tells him is this astonishing vision of God bringing some really amazing things to bear through his anointed one, his Messiah. That's the last time we see Gabriel. So let that just sit with you for a moment. As you as you read Luke chapter 1, you get this Gabriel figure, and we just blow right by that because we see him on top of our nativity sets. Gabriel is the messenger who the last time we saw him was announcing the coming arrival of our Messiah to bring some really amazing things. If you want to get the reference, it's Daniel chapter 9, verse 20 and following. And uh, we've... We don't have time to go into a full deep dive of what Daniel, you know, chapter two, chapter seven, chapter nine are unpacking, but go look at it. We're talking about God's kingdom invading uh, this world through his Messiah King, and it's amazing. And that's the last time we see Gabriel on the scene. So here we have Gabriel showing up, and he's got an announcement. And look at the nature of the announcement. Uh, The nature of the announcement is all about a king. And a kingdom. It's the king that sits on David's throne. He's great. He's the son of the most high, which is not necessarily a claim of his divinity. Uh, It's a claim of his close relationship with uh, the most high God. He's the one who will rule over Jacob's house. He's the king. Look at all the language that uh, the, uh, the angel Gabriel brings. And so right off the bat, when we start in our Advent uh, season, we start looking at our nativity sets, uh, we're talking about a king. We're talking about the long-awaited king. And when, we're, when we set ourselves, the tone of setting ourselves back in the Advent season is a season of, of exile, longing, waiting, and looking in darkness. And then here comes the light. That's what we're doing when we look at this Christmas. It's why we light candles. It's why we put lights on our house and we put uh, dead trees in our house and put lights on them. Uh, we do that because we're saying that in the darkness, the light has shown and the light is a light of a kingdom who's coming. And so uh, that just is a little teaser for where we're going to go on this first one. We got a lot to unpack there. Obviously, we're going to look at kind of an, an anatomy of what I think genuine 
confusion and doubt looks like with Mary, uh, but you got to come to church that day to get it. So uh, a lot we could unpack here. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where this first one's going to go as we look at the angel Gabriel coming to visit Mary. Man, I can't wait, Garland. And that's a great reminder for all of us. Um, some of us uh, haven't really returned to church during um, the post-pandemic or whatever we're in right now. Yeah, what is this that we're, we're in right We're now? in this weird in-between time, a time of darkness and waiting, I think you said. <laughs> Coming uh, already, but not yet. Yeah, right. Um, but man, Advent is a great time to return to church, and Advent would be a great season to just come back and be reminded of why fellowshipping together, gathering for corporate worship is so important. I'm looking forward to that in these Sundays ahead. So Clark, Garland's going to share with us on that first Sunday about Gabriel's appearance, his his message to Mary, and then you're going to follow up with the second Sunday of Advent um, with Mary's very famous response. What can we look forward to on that teaching? Yeah, Michael. Um, It's interesting in that uh, her response um, is one of uh, just glory um, back to the Lord and how gracious He's been to her. Um, she magnifies Him is is this this verb that's used. Um, she expresses a sense of reverent fear. Um, she admits her humble state, and uh, these three responses: uh, magnification, fear, humility are in response to God's goodness in her life, uh, him being mighty, him being holy, merciful, strong, um, her helper, and her savior. And so it's interesting that she personalizes um, the salvation narrative in and through what God's doing to her, but she also references, and this is fascinating in verse 54, um, uh, chapter 1, verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel. And so we have this nation's hope. And so uh, God is um, continuing his redemptive story in the life of his nation, but he's doing it through this individual. And um, she's acknowledging that. And uh, in both cases, she admits her humility, and she's, um, she's almost expressing this, this desperation or this humility of a nation needing a deliverer or a savior. And, uh, and so you have two things going on here. Um, you have this redemptive plan that God's working on behalf of a nation, but he's also doing it um, through the lens of this, this family, and in this case, uh, with Mary. Uh, much of the language, Michael, has a, a sense of past tense to it. Um, the word has is used um, some eight or nine different times. And so uh, there's a there's a recognition that God's been faithful to his past promises. And then in doing that in the present for Mary, um, he's followed through on what he said he would do, and he will continue to be faithful to his promises um, to rescue this nation. And uh, so again, just a snapshot of where heaven is meeting earth. And then you also notice the language here, and we'll see this more um, during the teaching. Um, but much of the response or the expectation of Mary and the nation of Israel in terms of receiving this king, it has this Sermon on the Mount or the Beatitude language to it. And so there's a meekness, there's this humility, this brokenness, this reverent fear. Um, it's all, all sense of pride or um, this, this proudness is, is pushed away. And God is God. 
the king is king. He's holy. Um, he's been their helper, and so they're walking fear and humility. And so, uh, yeah, looking forward to our time um, in this, and we'll uh, we'll get to jump uh, a week and move past the the birth of John the Baptist, Michael. And then I believe you're going to walk us through Zechariah's prophecy and uh, and just see um, how what what role does this uncle have in, in the life of the story? Yeah, do you, you want to speak into the Mary space? Well, does, it's just yeah. interesting. Like we're going to jump to an older couple, a priest, learned scholar, but none of our nativity movies can get Mary because they don't want to use a, probably a teenage actress. Like in your, like we're talking what, Clark, 16, I, I right? was thinking somewhere between 15 and 17. Yeah. So yeah. when we read Mary, it's like her trust in Yahweh, her knowledge of his plan uh, for a 16, 17-year-old. Like just when we watch those nativity story movies and all that this Christmas season, like it's going to always be like a 28-year-old actress. Um, it's just it just changes it for me. Even even hearing yeah. you talk about all that, I'm like, but golly, um, we're talking about a young girl. And then that's going to be contrasted. Her trust in Yahweh will be contrasted with this Zechariah Elizabeth. So, um, yeah. Yeah. And, and real quick, Garland, on that, um, the very last verse in this scene, and Mary remained with her, Elizabeth, about three months and then returned to her home. I'm wondering if she needed a 90-day window just to emotionally unpack what is happening to me. And I need, I need Elizabeth in my life to kind of work me through that. I, you're reading something into the text there, but you just wonder if there was this season of maturity that she needed to kind of unwind. What does this mean for my life uh, as such a young girl? Nerdy side note, uh, it's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy when Mary finds out that she's going to conceive. That's right. Then she goes and she stays for three months. It might be that she stayed to see John born and yeah. went wow, this really is, like, this is really happening. She's now showing. She's three months pregnant by that point. So just yeah, weird little things in the story that just make it like, man, we got to almost transport ourselves to put us in the in the raw of this story. And it's it's deep and rich, but human um, at the same time. So anyway. Yeah, that's good. You know, one of the things I always note that's it's not really part of our series here, but Elizabeth didn't get a visit from an angel. Um, Elizabeth... When Mary gets there, she says, who am I that the Lord of my Lord would visit me? Uh, she knows. And I just, man, the faith of Elizabeth always jumps off the page at me. This woman who's had a lifetime of, I'm sure, begging God for a child and that prayer going unanswered until an unexpected time. And she has so much faith and insight. Just, I had my team read these chapters yesterday. Uh, we, we went out to Wilson Park. It was the last good, like, warm day. We just, I said, take 30 minutes and read these. And we came back, and one of the things that I noted, and there, I just never really noticed it before. Here's Luke coming out with the gospel about Jesus, you know, the king. And yet these first two chapters, so many speeches are by, and, and moments of trust are by women. Um, just Luke, like, the story about the king. And yet, deep trust of Elizabeth, this song of a teenage girl. Like, it's just, I don't think an ancient writer would start that way in the ancient culture unless, man, he went and talked to Mary and went, wow, this is amazing. So just think about the implications of this gospel to be sent out to all the Roman empire starts with a couple just stories of women. Uh, it's just really deep. We got things we got to think about. Yeah, yeah, that's a good setup for my, my piece here because um, next he, he shifts the scene to an old uncle. And so I can totally relate because that's exactly who I am. Uh, I'm an old guy who has nieces and nephews and I love being their uncle. And, uh, Zechariah, Mary, 
and Elizabeth have exhibited this incredible faith as we pick up the story after Mary's song of praise, um, Zechariah actually is mute. He can't speak because he didn't believe with simple faith. He didn't just embrace the message earlier in the chapter. We're not going to go back and read that right now, but uh, we'll look at it when we have the service that uh, that he and Elizabeth were going to be blessed with a child. And so the one who actually fails to believe initially is the priest, the old man, the one guy that you would think, man, he's walking with the Lord. He's going to be so in touch. No, the women, and, and to your point, um, a teenage girl, they respond with such faith and obedience, and Zechariah responds with doubt. And so he spends the entire time of Elizabeth's pregnancy unable to speak until the baby's born. And uh, Elizabeth says, his name's going to be John. And all the people that are gathered there are like, John, that's not a name in your family. That's it's a Basically, the implication is that's a totally inappropriate name. And when in faith, Zechariah says his name is John, he's, he's able to speak. And the first thing he does is gives us this spirit-filled prayer. Um, some of the scholars and, and commentators point out in verse 67, it says, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Well, we already know that Zechariah is the father. There's really no reason for Luke to reintroduce him to us, except that he likely was using um, something that was already existed, that someone had already written down Zechariah's prophetic prayer of praise here. It's really a psalm or a hymn. Um, and so Luke, in his careful research that Clark pointed out to us, likely uncovered this and included it uh, in its entirety. Uh, this is Holy Spirit-inspired scripture, and this is a Holy Spirit-inspired uh, psalm or hymn of praise. And it's interesting. He starts off blessing God for what he's doing in providing a Messiah. And so all this Old Testament imagery comes in. Psalm 18's all over this thing um, where he is saying God is fulfilling his promises long made. Um, he's lifting up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David, he says in verse 69. And so the first half of this this poem, this psalm of praise, is about the Messiah, that God is sending his Messiah, and it's got this prophetic language, and he talks about um, the covenant, that God will remember his covenant. Uh, That's in verse 72, and um, for our time right now, I'm not going to go into those covenants, but we will in the teaching, and so those of you who are anticipating this teaching, I would say, Take a look at the beginning of Genesis 12. Take a look at 2 Samuel 7. Take a look at Jeremiah um, chapter 31, especially verse 34, and you'll see some of the covenants that we're going to find expressly fulfilled by the Messiah in this passage. And then in verse 76, his focus shifts. I love, Garland, how you said this the other day as we were talking about this passage. You said, in your mind, the camera pans and zooms in on the newborn John the Baptist. And that's exactly what happens in the text. Um, he begins to talk about his son, who will be the prophet of the Most High again. Um, you can look at, at Psalm 18, 13, where you see that kind of language. And he says he'll go before him. Um, Malachi 3, Isaiah chapter 40, we're told there will be this forerunner. And Luke's letting us know now the forerunner has been born. Uh, the, all these prophecies about the Messiah 
and the one who, like Elijah, will go before him and prepare the way are coming to pass right before their eyes. And so uh, John the Baptist plays an incredibly important role in fulfilling prophecy and promise. He plays an important role in setting the stage for his relative. We sometimes call him his cousin. We don't know exactly how they were related, but he was definitely related to Jesus um, for him to, to take center stage. And if we could just fast forward to the ministry of Jesus, John the Baptist is an adult, Jesus is an adult. In John 3.30, John the Baptist says, I must decrease so that he may increase. And that's really the theme of John the Baptist's life. He's to prepare the way and to hand it off to the to the son. John the Baptist is a prophet, but Jesus is the son. And so this is a powerful passage. I'm excited for us to study it together. And it's gonna set us up for the last Sunday of Advent, followed by our Christmas Eve service where uh, Garland, we're, we've, this whole time we've been journeying to the manger and the Sunday before Christmas and then Christmas Eve, we're going to arrive in that stable where the King of Kings is laid in a feeding trough. Yeah, I'm, obviously, just what a, what a statement that is. That's going to be going to drive some of even the theme of our Christmas Eve service. But um, just notice chapter two, verse one, um, uh, one and two. We get this these historical markers, and I, I do think it's it's. Uh, popular to be dismissive of these passages because they are very supernatural. We're talking about angels. And I hear people all the time say things like, well, of course they believe this stuff back then. They were stupid. They were dumb. Uh, They were inclined to believe such things. They were gullible. And um, first of all, I think that that smacks of incredible what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery, assuming that we're so brilliant now. Uh, they discovered like, you know, math and philosophy and democracy and built buildings that still stand to this day. And we build strip malls. Okay. So, and they built those buildings without yeah, like without, any, without cranes and computers. And so <laughs> they're not dumb. So we got to dismiss that. And then I think second of all, Luke is going out of his way to say, verify this, look into this. Now, um, we have to do some historical work to get to the exact census that this is, um, but it, it shouldn't be lost on you or me, the reader. Caesar Augustus had, had, this is Octavian Augustus, the adopted son of Julius Caesar, and this Caesar was, uh, he was, I mean, he had a long, decades-long run, and all over the Roman Empire, uh, there were basically billboards that celebrated the birth of this Caesar, and it's, I think, pretty uh, interesting that right in the middle of this account, uh, Luke places that little note because Caesar Augustus is making claim to being the true king of the world. And right in the middle of his story about Jesus, he drops this little, oh, and by the way, Caesar Augustus is the one who's ruling. Uh, Luke's just really clever. And he's going out of his way, though, to demythologize this. So anybody uh, approaching your nativity set, let me just give you a couple of of things to look for. Uh, we're talking about real events that have been real history, probably in about 6 BC. Um, Herod the Great, the one in Matthew, it's recorded that Matthew dies. We can be pretty sure in 4 BC. So the 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 medieval monks that dated our calendar that we still use got it, the birth of Jesus off by a few years. Um, but I applaud them for trying. So really, we're in the year 2027 or so right now, if we wanted to be precise. Uh, but we're talking about a real events, real events with a real person in a real place, um, and so that that kind of helps me when I even look at these cute little nativity sets that are all glowing. And um, you said a feeding trough. Just Google uh, first century uh, uh, Palestinian 
feeding trough or manger. It's not made of wood. It's mm-hmm. made of rock. It's nasty. It's where uh, sheep and oxen come and eat. And if we, we all live in Arkansas, we all know what well, the old Arkansas used to know what that looked like. I'm not sure what Northwest Arkansas is moving towards now. Uh, but uh, just just we have to do some mental gymnastics with um, with our with our cute little nativity sets. But here we have the king of the world uh, coming into the world in Nowhereville, where nobody knows, to not uh, Roman senators or generals out in battle, but to lowly blue collar shepherds, and that says something about the nature of this king's ministry. Uh, Daryl Bach is a scholar, and he says, the tone and style of the incarnation and birth of Jesus directly match the flavor of his ministry later. And uh, as we look through the Gospel of Luke, that's what we see Jesus doing, like over and over and over again. He's flipping world systems upside down. Uh, that's what you were alluded to, Clark, on Mary's song. And from the very beginning, that's who our king is. And so uh, we need to recognize that as we go into Christmas. This is calling, this king is calling his people to an upside down way of seeing the world uh, where the proud are humbled and the humbled are lifted up and the rich are sent away, sent away empty handed and the poor he he fills with good things, one who hungers for righteousness. And so uh, we follow a king who later will be, uh, he will have no... <laughs> No possessions that we can speak of will be betrayed and will eventually be crucified. And so that's our victorious king. And as we, as our calendar ultimately will point, it points to Easter. And so the incarnation is the story of the broken human condition and the extent to our God's desire to partner with us and to love us and to rescue us that he got into the mess himself. That's what we're really talking about big picture at Christmas. And we're going to be celebrating that on Christmas Eve uh, together here as a church. So, man, I, I love Christmas. I, I always think when I get to Christmas season, like, oh, the red Starbucks cups and the gifts and all this just commercialism of it. And if we can cut through that this year as a church, man, it's so powerful. I just, I, I look forward to this. Yeah. Well, ultimately, um, the scriptures in, uh, in chapter two here, verse 20, it says the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen just as had been told them. And so this time of the year should point us to uh, a, a month of celebration and worship of the one, one true King and making sure that he's at the centerpiece of our celebrations. Yeah, you that's know? so good. You know, a lot of times we hear in, in our culture and in popular media the wonder of the season, the wonder of Christmas. And usually we think of that, we think of, you know, a child looking at a snow globe, the twinkling lights. Um, but to Garland's point earlier, those lights are part of our Christmas celebration for a reason. They remind us the light of the world. And so... Our prayer for you, Fellowship Fayetteville, is number one, that you experience the wonder of the incarnation, that the creator God of the universe stepped into, Garland said, our mess. Um, He was born in a stable, one of the messiest places you can think of. Um, He took on flesh. He became a person um, so that he could redeem for himself a people. And so our prayer, number one, is that we would all experience the wonder of the incarnation. And then number two, that we'd be able to share that with those around us. This is one of those times of the year that Christianity sort of takes center stage in our culture. So many people will celebrate Christmas who don't know the Lord, don't understand the significance of his birth. And so 
Uh, our hope is that the people of fellowship and, and, uh, and those of us sitting around this table right now, we'll all look for that opportunity to share um, the incredible good news of Jesus as people are considering what Christmas is all about. And so uh, that's our prayer for you, fellowship. Uh, we're excited about Advent. Um, we hope that it's a time of joy. Um, and anticipation as we remember Jesus stepping into time and space and history and becoming a man um, so that he could go to the cross and pay for our sins. And so we hope you have a great holiday season and we'll look forward to what the Lord has next for us. Um, We'll see you later on. Thanks for listening.